anyone else the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Corinth? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I'm not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof, you're living proof that I am the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and, and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion? Or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Lord, thank you for your holy word today. Penetrate the truths that are in this chapter deep into our spirits. And may we live out and apply your word to our daily lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. You may be seated as I continue. Verse 13. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet, I have never used any of these rights. <clears throat> and I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet, preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of God 
of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. It's a lot in there today. And uh, I titled this message, 13 Questions. Did you hear them all? He just started with question after question after question. A better title today would have been uh, Under the Law of Christ, Yet Free. Under the Law of Christ, as we all are, yet free. So you all know, I, I, I guess you know, I love the number 13. It's uh, been ripped off from us as believers. I want to get it back. Um, God's number is seven. Man's number is six. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Seven and six. So his number's 13. That's why he only had 12 disciples in him. That's 13. I don't know if that's true or not, but, <laughs> but stay with me. I'm going to stretch this thing out as far as I can. The accepted day on our calendar that Jesus died was April the 3rd, 33 AD. Okay, so what are the numbers? April, the fourth month, third day. That's seven the year 33, so 3 and 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. So I'm going to be a little creative here. For the Jewish people uh, in Exodus chapter 12, they were given the, the, the day of the 14th day of the first month. So you see 13 right there, 14 minus 1? Okay, I'm stretching it just a little bit here. But I'm convinced that because the day Jesus died was a Friday and his number is 13, that's why Satan has grabbed that number and that day and people freak out still on Friday the 13th. I think Friday the 13th should be the best day that we ever celebrate, all right? So we just had one. Here in uh, January, we got another one coming in October. Uh, guys, let's get our heads together and figure out what are we going to do on Friday the 13th. Man, we need to celebrate. That's the day Jesus died. That's his number. And uh, we want to do something very special. So this brings us to 13 questions. Now remember uh, how we told you that when Paul gets upset, he begins to ask rhetorical questions. He must really be ticked off because at this juncture, he asks 13 rhetorical questions. Now, if you're one of those type people like me and you're counting question marks right now in the Bible, there's 17 question marks in the New Living Translation that we read from. But 
the Greek language has no punctuation marks. So it would seem that it really ends up just being 13 questions. Paul deeply loves these Corinthians, but he is so frustrated with them because they want to continue in their sinful lifestyle of idolatry, and they want to call that freedom. Now, not only is he arguing that he should submit his own personal freedom and his own authority as an apostle to the gospel, but it's very clear that he expects every Christian to live the same way. The Corinthians considered themselves to be so mature as Christians, so strong in their faith, that they are now, or they should be now, in a privileged position to be free to do whatever they want, especially to meet, to eat meat offered to idols. These privileges that uh, they felt should be given to those who grew to a certain strength and maturity uh, shouldn't be available or permissible to lesser men and women that aren't as strong in the faith. That's kind of what Paul was up against here. So here's the Apostle Paul, who was their teacher, trying to tell them that the stronger and more mature you become in Christ, the more willing you are to give up all of your privileges for the sake of those you teach, and to win as many people to Jesus Christ as you possibly can. This is what Paul lived for. He loved who he was and what he did so much that it was as if he never worked a day in his life. It's true. Figure out what you love doing, where's your passion, and perhaps that will become your life's work. But for all of us, when we follow God's will and when we spread the gospel, whether we're in the ministry or not, that is where we will find our greatest fulfillment in life. There was a missionary to Burma, now Myanmar, way back named Adoram Judson, and here's what he said. There's no success without sacrifice. If you succeed without sacrifice, it's because someone has suffered before you. If you sacrifice without success, it's because someone will succeed after you. That's really good. Sacrifice, success. You can't have success without sacrifice. Point number one of my message today, we as believers in Christ sacrifice joyfully. In 1 Corinthians 9, we see the sacrifice Paul is making in order that his preaching of the gospel would be successful. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew, in order that I might gain the Jews. Now, remember in the book of Acts, Paul was not real successful in ministering to the Jewish people. Uh, he, he tried his best, but he made such a huge sacrifice for the gospel with the Jewish people this is what led him to his great success with the Gentiles. The other aspect of this dedication to the gospel is not to compromise the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, 
lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and then ascended to heaven. He will soon return as the groom who is coming for his bride, the church. Amen. That's the gospel, in essence. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Along with the truth that all men are sinners and in need of him as their only savior. There was a man named Major Ian Thomas who was an evangelist and shortly following World War II, he said these words, Christ in you on the grounds of redemption, this is the gospel. To preach anything less than this must inevitably produce evangelifish. Folk with no spiritual vertebrae whose faith does not behave. In other words, how we behave shows what we really believe. Point number two today, Christian behavior matches what we believe. That's what the entire book of Ephesians is about. Matching up, balancing out our behavior with our belief system. Our mission here at Trinity Life Center My mission as someone who has dedicated my life to preaching the gospel is to build up evangelicals, build up Christians, and get us to the place where all of us are boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Please, let's not ever settle for being evangelifish. Someone so afraid to say anything about Jesus that no one really knows whether or not you're a Christian because you're too scared to say anything. Please, God has given you power. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you to embolden you to preach the good news, to share with the people that you come in contact with. Let's pray together that God will give us all what I like to call a backbone of steel anchored in concrete. Lord, empower us, embolden us to tell people the good news about Jesus. Amen. 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 Paul has a backbone for the gospel, not only to tell the truth of the gospel, but the process of preaching the gospel that he might gain whoever he's preaching to. The Jews under the law and even those now outside of the law. Paul was under the law of Christ. Yet his commitment to preaching the gospel with backbone did not prevent him from adjusting his lifestyle to maximize his message to whoever would hear his preaching. One accommodation he made was that he did not take any support or money from the Corinthians so that he wasn't indebted to any group who could then pressure him to support their cause or water down the message of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the temple priests at that time had grown fat while living in luxury. They really they weren't taken seriously anymore back in the first century because of their again their lifestyle, their behavior wasn't matching what they said they believed. Uh, These guys, most of them, had a disease like gout from eating too luxuriously. Most of them uh, 
were, were in the temple, and, and they never left it. A rabbi was supposed to teach for free and to make money elsewhere. But they taught that the most notorious deed a Jewish person could accomplish was to support a rabbi. And let me tell you, that caught on. To this day, you go into Israel, and the people that are the most well taken care of in Israel are rabbis. They're, they're buried in the biggest tombs. And Paul wasn't going to have any part of this. And even though the free Greeks would never work with their hands because they despised manual labor, Paul allows them to look down on him because he made tents with his hands. Because why? Because it was important for him to model laying down his rights and his privileges. That's the point. That's what he's trying to get across to these folks. 1 Corinthians 9 we're going to break it down today into four sections. It's 24 verses. No one could say everything about this chapter in one sermon, but you know me, I'm going to try. Uh, didn't mean to scare you there. Uh, let me just break this down. First seven verses, section one, often used to discuss the freedom and the authority of ministers, either to show that they have rights or to demonstrate what rights they're going to give up. Section 2, verses 8 through 16, are often used to show that pastors and ministers should be able to be paid by their congregations. Section 3, verses 19 to 24, often preached to show what kind of sacrifices Christians might make so that they can evangelize others. And section 4, verses 25 through 27, shows up the us the commitment necessary to preach the gospel and win the incorruptible prize of salvation. I'm going to take a picture of that so I won't forget all that I just said right there. There we go. I suggest you do the same. First Corinthians chapter 8 to verse to all the way up to chapter 11 verse 1. It's not an argument and you need to know this. It's not an argument between a group of strong and weak people in the Corinthian church. These chapters are an argument between the people in this church and the Apostle Paul. <laughs> to be allowed, they wanted to be allowed to continue to eat meat sacrificed to idols and attend the many idol temples of the city. That's where the social life really happened, and they wanted to be a part of it. And so that's what this battle is all about. And now, here in chapter 9, Paul is defending his apostleship, but you can't isolate that or you'll lose context. Because if you let that happen, then Paul looks whiny in this chapter. He looks defensive, but that's not what's happening. If the argument is between the church and Paul that they are free to eat meat sacrificed to an idol and to participate in idolatry, that's, that's what it was. Well, then Paul's not whining about his hardships, but he's giving them an example to follow how you can lay your own rights down and have real freedom not to participate in sin, a byproduct 
of not participating in sinful idolatry and following his example is that they would be able to forego their freedom for the sake of winning people to Christ, for the sake of the gospel itself. So as you can see, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that the first question Paul asks in this chapter is, am I not free? It's not a random discussion of Paul's apostolic rights, but Paul is expressing the true use of Christian freedom in submission to the gospel. As citizens of the kingdom of God, you and I, here today, we have freedom in Christ, greater than the freedom afforded us by the Declaration of Independence. But we are encouraged to voluntarily give up our freedom for the sake of the gospel so that we can lead as many people to Jesus as we possibly can. These 13 questions found in today's text all have to do with freedom and authority and rights that Paul has given up for the sake of saving those who have not yet been saved. That's what this chapter is all about. Now, there's no need for us to go over each question individually, all 13 of them, because they all have the same intent. Doesn't Paul have the rights of an apostle? He points out that even if others do not accept his apostleship, the Corinthians cannot reject him because he was the first one to bring the gospel to them. He says, you're my seal of apostleship in the Lord. The Corinthians are disputing Paul's authority as an apostle because he does work with his hands. So they were looking down on him. But he refuses to allow this church to pay for any of his expenses. And his sacrifice has led the Corinthians to doubt his true authority as an apostle. Paul responds that the Corinthians themselves are living proof all the proof anyone would ever need that he is indeed an apostle. Hidden behind this statement is the correction from him. And if I'm your apostle, this is what he's really trying to say. I am your apostle. And if I am your apostle, why are you arguing with me about idol worship and meat sacrifice to idols? So Paul is advancing his address, uh, advancing his, his ability to address the right and the authority that he has to have the Corinthians provide for his financial support. And he asks them this rhetorical question, what soldier has ever provided his own rations? The answer to that is, that's never happened. He anticipates the Corinthians arguing back that his example is just a human example, but I have a simple piece of advice I'd like to give to that Corinthian church. I wouldn't argue with the Apostle Paul about that if I were you. I wouldn't argue with him about the Bible. I wouldn't take that class if I were you. The Apostle Paul knows what he's talking about. He 
the Holy Spirit used him to write an awful lot of God's word for us to grow by. So now he cites three biblical examples about how the ox and the priests and the altar workers are all provided for during their holy service. His conclusion to this section is, if we have sown the spiritual things to you, is it too much if we harvest the natural things from you? He immediately, in verse 12, backs away from asserting this right. He has the right to do it, but he backs away. And now he is developing what he's saying to the Corinthians and bringing this home. And he says, but we do not make use of this authority. Uh, and here's the original Greek. But all things we bear, all things we bear. Point number three of today's message, Christians know when to be silent. When it says in verse 12, all things we bear, the verb here is uh, stegomen. It, it, it's a present verb showing that Paul's intention is to continue to use his tent making as his support for the ministry. But he alludes to the truth that this is going to cause a hardship with the verb that means to endure. The idea of enduring some trial or difficulty is only half of the meaning that's being conveyed. The full idea, usually not included in the translation, is to endure something in silence out of agape love for someone else. Now, that's a class that I think all of us will take at one time or another in our lifetime. And the only way to pass the test is to remain silent about the person or the people who have deeply wounded you and to love them the way Jesus loves you. So what do we do? Sometimes you're going to run into a situation where somebody has hurt you so deeply and you just want to tell everybody about it and the Lord's going to tell you, silent. Bear it, endure it, pray for them, hold them up, lift them up to God. Wait patiently for God to intervene on your behalf. If you let God intervene, you're going to see a tremendous outcome. But here's the temptation for all of us. Come on, we're all human. We've all done this. I'm going to gain some allies. I'm going to gain some sympathy. I'm going to make that person look as bad as they are. Don't do it. Pass the test. It's a way of letting the Lord know he can trust you. Paul is enduring in silence the attacks and the insults that he's been receiving from the church in Corinth. Why? Because he loves them so deeply. He loves them so much. How deep do we love? It's going to be expressed on that day, when you want to tear somebody a new one, and you just keep your mouth shut, and you pray for them. It's true that Paul is speaking up for his right and his authority now, but he's not doing it for his own sake, and certainly not so the Corinthians would financially contribute to him. 
he's bringing this up to teach them, to give them an example of what God's agape love looks like when they forego their own rights and set aside their own authority and freedom and participate. You know, they, they, they wanted this freedom. They were so, I would say, hell-bent on participating in the idolatry of the temple. So that's why Paul had to be so strong here. And his instructions are that they wouldn't do this just for the weaker brother. That's not the motivation that Paul's arguing for today. He's simply stating that loving this way would be the best possible way to witness, to share the gospel, to show their faithfulness to God, to walk with Jesus as closely as they possibly could. And this is all repeated very succinctly in the poem about agape love called 1 Corinthians 13. Now we're on our way. We're going to get there. I had one man in our church tell me, I'll be back when you get to chapter 13. Okay. See you then. But look, we're there today. Verse 7 says that love, agape love, God's love through us, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, this is so powerful just the way it is. But it could also have been written from the original that we who, who act out of agape love, that's our motivation for everything we do. We bear all things in silence. We believe all things. We hope all things. We endure all things. If we could put those four verbs all working together it would be so powerful. It would be like shining the light of agape love through a prism so that everybody could see the rainbow of colors that make up the spectrum of agape love. And one of those colors would be to bear or to endure all things in silence. So the idea here that the apostles trying to get across is that sometimes you're going to have to endure all things by remaining quiet and just staying with it and putting your hand on the plow and enduring hardship and just doing what you know is being obedient to that inner voice of the Holy Spirit who speaks to us. Endure all things in silence, endure all things without complaining and grumbling. Uh, those are two sides of the same coin of agape love. If you have a, a difficult friend or a difficult boss, a difficult family member, you're in, attempting to endure with them for the sake of agape love, but you're whining and complaining to others the whole time about this difficulty, then you have some growing to do in showing agape love. Let's say you want to ask for prayer about this situation. It's okay. It's okay to go to a, a pastor or to a, a trusted friend and say, you know, I'm going through something. I'm so frustrated. I'm so hurt. I'm so sad. 
I, I probably wouldn't divulge the person's name at that point who's causing you this emotional pain. Of course, uh, you can talk to your spouse or in a counseling setting with a counselor. You could bring up the person. But for all others, leave the person to whom you are showing agape love out of the equation. Keep it on yourself and what feelings are being stirred up inside of you. So Paul's not saying that he's enduring hardship in silence to get anything for himself for the, from the Corinthians, but rather to persuade them to change their attitude about using what they perceive to be their freedom in Christ so that they could go ahead and participate in idolatry. Now this is all summed up beautifully by a man named David Garland, who in the year 2003 wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. Here's what he says. Most important is the principle that Paul wants the Corinthians to extrapolate from his discourse on the rights of an apostle. He gives up his rights for the sake of others out of Christian love, agape love. This ethic, being able to endure all things to benefit others, that's in Chapter 9, verse 12, not seeking one's own advantage, but the salvation of many, that's what, that's what we're after. That's in chapter 10, verse 33. And then to imitate Christ, that's in chapter 11, verse 1. That's the key to his position on eating meat sacrificed to idols back in chapter 8, verse 13. And his policy is governed by the gospel and how to best win converts to Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to do whatever it is we need to do to see people come to know Jesus. In verse 19, Paul leaves behind the issue of his support since it was only an example of what he's enduring out of agape love. And now he returns to the issue of his freedom. While he again is asserting his freedom, As he did when he began chapter 9, we now see the paradox that his freedom is subjugated into slavery in order to win the most people for Christ that he possibly can. Paul was a Jew, but when he saw Jesus and became a Christian, he immediately experienced freedom in Christ. And that freedom, in part, was a freedom from the Jewish rituals and the kosher food laws. But when Paul would enter a new city to preach the gospel, what did he do? He always went straight to the synagogue until they threw him out, (laughs) which they always did. But he was doing his best. He would go to the Jews. He'd become a Jew. He would do what was important to them, even though he was free. Why? So that he might win them to Christ. He, he made Jewish vows. He worshiped in the temple. He followed the Jewish kosher laws when he was in Israel. But what he was equally firm about was that this was his freedom that he was sacrificing. And he was protecting the freedoms of others to not be pressured to live like a Jewish person. So to the uncircumcised, 
He protected their freedom by resisting the false teachers, the Judaizers that came along and said, well, now that you've come to Christ, you certainly need to be circumcised. And Paul said, no. He was so pure in all of this. He, he practiced faithfully whatever was important for the people to whom he was preaching, for the purpose of saving those who had yet come to know the good news about Jesus. So he, he sums up the practice by saying this, to all men, I have become all things in order that I may save some of all. Now when he says to all men, I've become all things, or when he says to those without the law, as without the law, he doesn't mean he ever accommodated himself to sin in order that others might be saved. And that's what was going on in Corinth. And this is a key point. This is a subtle point, but it's a key point for the Corinthians that they were trying to justify their participation in idolatry through the meat as an evangelistic strategy. Well, if we go to the temple and we eat the meat with them and we sit there with them, what better chance will we have to share Jesus with them? Listen, I want to encourage all of us to accommodate ourselves to the people around us so that our not yet Christian friends will get saved, but don't join them in their sin. Okay? Very, very important. That's a big part of what's being said here. Hey, guys. Listen, we preach and teach constantly around here about our freedom in Christ because so many of us were raised being shamed and blamed under this false sense of legalism. Am I right? I mean, you know, we, we've had to really come out from under that to get to our freedom. As Pentecostals, uh, there's a lot of legalism. And that simply means, hey... Uh, the Lord told me I couldn't be doing that. You shouldn't do it either. Well, wait a minute. Now you're the Holy Spirit? That's legalism. Don't do that. Listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying for you, what's good for you, and what you need to refrain from. But don't sin whatever you do. And you don't have the right to tell others that that's what they need to be doing. So encourage one another. Put aside your personal freedoms, put aside your rights so that you can lead other people to Jesus. Get in there. Roll up your sleeves. <laughs> Live among the people as someone who is not self-absorbed, but someone who genuinely cares about others. I know it's not popular, but get to know your neighbors. Be a better listener than you are a speaker. Earn the right to be heard. Help people every chance you get. Live in such a way that others will be drawn to the many ways you are like Christ. So let's set aside our freedoms and our rights when it will benefit the gospel. Paul wants us all to run to win the prize. This is the, the portion of Scripture we're most familiar with today. Paul wants us to get in there 
and understand there's a prize to be won for a Christian. There's a trophy for us when we arrive before Christ. That's why Paul said, and, and I read it this way to you in the New Living, that I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. You know what the old translation says? Paul says, I buffet my body. But you know what the, the Las Vegas translation is? I buffet my body every day. In the, uh, the um, station casinos, you know, they, they haven't brought them back yet. It's really bugging me. Because I like those ones called the feast. But uh, I've been here long enough, I've got the mark of the feast. <laughs> so maybe it's good that they haven't come back yet. <laughs> point number four, my final point. Christians, come on. Let's run the race to win. Let's bring as many people with us to heaven as we possibly can. Now, I suppose you all know <laughs> that there are only six teams left in the NFL. And after today, there will only be four teams left. And one of those four teams will win the Lombardi Trophy after winning the Super Bowl. It's a physical trophy. That uh, Tom Brady, after their win a few years ago, took that trophy, he was on a boat out in a, a, a river, and he threw it to his big tight end uh, who, who actually caught it and didn't drop it in the water to be lost forever. That's how they were treating the trophy. I guess that's what you do if you've won that thing seven times. It just doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but do, do you know how they treat the Stanley Cup in hockey? Last year, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. And in less than five minutes before it even left the ice, they dented the Stanley Cup. I guess it's just a, a trophy. Each football player that wins the Super Bowl this year will be rewarded with extra cash and they'll get a Super Bowl ring designed by their organization. Now, many of those rings in the past have been hawked at a pawn shop because the player mismanaged his money. Can you believe that? Millions of dollars down the tubes. The closest I ever came to all that was in the minor leagues of baseball with the Phillies organization, my team, we won our World Series. And here's my World Series ring. And I love this ring. But uh, mainly because of all the special things it has on there. It has my name, how many games we won, where we played, all that stuff. And mainly because I lost it after two years. Two years after I won this, I was at the gym, I think I've told you this before, I turned my back from my locker just for a moment, and when I came back, my ring was gone, and I lost this ring for 26 years, until on my 50th birthday, Pam hands me this little gift, this little box, I open it up, there's my ring, 
She went all the way to the top brass of the Phillies organization. They went into the archives, and she got my ring back. And so, thanks, hon. And uh, because of that, it means so very, very much. But um, I love this line. It's from a, a movie about the National Football League. Uh, this lady is talking to one of the, I think he's the general manager of one of the football teams, and he says, all you big, tough, grown men put your bodies through all that just for a piece of jewelry? Well, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Friends, we as believers in Christ, we're not working for a cup, a trophy, a ring, or even a crown. That can be dented, broken, stolen, pawned, faded, decayed. We're athletes who are working uh, not to receive a corruptible crown like all those guys putting their bodies through what they put it through to try and win the Super Bowl. But we as believers work for an incorruptible crown. Now we're going to get to that one day in chapter 15 which tells us that our mortal bodies are sown as corruptible bodies, but they're going to be raised incorruptible. We have an incorruptible crown to match our incorruptible bodies. Isn't that going to be something? No more pain, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more arthritis, no more gout, no more heart trouble, no more pain. Could you just imagine? How much more important is it to work and sacrifice for an incorruptible crown that you will have in heaven throughout eternity the trophy of having planted a seed and telling somebody about Jesus? Or maybe you were there to water a seed that's already been planted. Or maybe, just maybe, you're going to be there when God gives the increase and that person gives their heart and life to Jesus. Friends, that's what we're working towards. So discipline yourself. Look for every opportunity. Who can I share Christ with today? You know, I, one of the people that just amazes me, she loves the Lord as much as anybody I've ever known. And uh, she goes around, every restaurant she's in, she'll sit there and ask the Lord for a word for the waiter or the waitress. And she'll, she'll write it down on paper and she'll hand it to them. And she's just always looking for that opportunity. And that's our Christina. And I just thank the Lord for her and so many of you, yeah, that just... Love the Lord, and you want so much for him to use you. And I want you to bow your head right now. I want you to close your eyes. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, do it right now. All of us are working and sacrificing for things that are corruptible. Here today, gone tomorrow, we work for our houses, our cars, money, trophies, social status. These things aren't even guaranteed to make it through the year, let alone into heaven. So let's work for the heavenly treasures and rewards that we can experience right here today. And they will follow us into the life 
to come. Work, ladies and gentlemen. Struggle for eternal life. Not that you have to do the work or the struggle. It's already been done when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and rose again on the third day. No, the work and the struggle that I'm speaking about is the struggle to follow Jesus Christ and live a godly Christian life so that your life is pleasing to him, so that you will experience all of the joy and all of the blessing that heaven has to offer us. Oh, Father, we just come before you humbly today, Lord. We want to be the best Christian we can possibly be. Not for us, not for somebody to say, oh man, look at them. Not at all. But so that we can bring as many people with us to heaven as we possibly can. Now I want you to think about this, friends. Uh, we've got so many opportunities to share Christ. And maybe you, you don't feel adequate. Mainly the, the key is four things that you want to get across. Man is a sinner. God loves you. Jesus is the answer. Faith is the key. Those four things. If you're going to be an adequate witness of the gospel, those are the four things. Start with yourself. Man, I, I'm such a sinner. I have fallen short of the glory of God and the the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I'm going to die. I'm going to be eternally separated from God because of my sinful ways. And, and the Bible says we've all sinned. Everybody has sinned, fallen short of God's glory. But that's the bad news. Here's the good news. But the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you tell them about how much God loves them. Tell them that Jesus, what he's done for them. Tell them what he's done for you. Let them know Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. Jesus is what living is all about. He who has the Son has life, the Bible says. And he who does not have the Son of God has not even begun to live. There's a lot of people walking around that are dead. And we want to see them come to life. So let's get this message across. Man is a sinner. God loves you. Jesus is the answer. Faith is the key. And we always give you opportunities here in our services and our dinner theater that's coming up. I want you to invite somebody. I want you to think right now about who you're going to bring with you to the dinner theater. You know, it's not for you. We're not doing this just to have something else to do around here. We don't need anything else to do to fill up our schedules. We're doing it because we want to bring people with us to heaven. We want to be disciplined athletes for Jesus. We want to do whatever we can to see people come to Christ. So here's what I'm asking you to do right now. I want you to tell the person sitting next to you, the name of the person that you're praying for that you want to invite and buy their ticket for them to come to the dinner theater. Who is that? If you were able to come to the dinner theater and you were going to bring a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, 
a loved one, who would that be? Tell somebody, and then let's pray for all of these. I have a, a neighbor named Jonathan, and I just want so much for the Lord to open the door for me, to minister to him, and to uh, just invite him to come to the dinner theater and his girlfriend. Lord, place somebody on our hearts. We should all always have somebody on our heart that we're praying for to come to know you. Maybe there's somebody here today and you want to invite Jesus into your life. Just raise your hands real high right now and say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of all of my sins. I choose to repent and to get my mind changed about what you think about me so that I'll know that you're not condemning me, you're not out to get me, you love me, you care about me, Jesus, you died for me. If I was the only person on this planet, you still have come and died for me. And then, Lord, now that you've saved me, place somebody on my heart that I can lead to you, that I can bring with me to the, the dinner theater coming up February 10th, a Friday night, a couple Friday nights from now. Oh God, in the name of Jesus, please, Lord, open the door. Give us the opportunity to invite them so that they can hear a very clear presentation of the gospel and give their lives to you. somebody and, and I know his dad his dad and, and I have been praying for him for a long time and I invited him and he came and he gave his life to Jesus at the dinner theater last year and he's been through a rough battle he's, he's going through some tough times but I'm telling you God has his hand on this young man's life I want you to point your hands, in fact let's all stand together just point your hands towards him Lord my buddy Skyler today him like crazy. We just come against any power of the enemy in the name of Jesus. Drive back every force of hell. And Lord God, raise this young man up and take all the gifts that you've given to him and use them for your glory. He's going to lead a lot of people to Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord. Now, Lord, help all of us never know what's going to happen. It was miraculous that he gave his life to Christ. It was a miracle. And the first thing he did when he left last year, left the, the play when I was wearing that long wig, that beautiful hair that was on my head. And uh, first thing he did, went out and called his dad and said, Dad, I genuinely gave my life to Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 
us have a Skyler in our lives. Help us to bring them and take advantage of these opportunities that you're giving us to see people come to know you. Lord, help us to do whatever it takes. We'll surrender any right, any privilege that we have. Boy, if it means I'm never going to drink alcohol again to lead somebody to Christ, I'll never drink it again. Whatever it is, Lord, whatever it is, I'm willing to give up whatever it is to make sure that my witness is pure and my life is standing for Christ. And I, I have such a burden and a passion to lead people into a personal relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to ask right now that um, I'm going to ask Pastor Virginia to come. Is she here? She was here. Yeah, she must have had to leave. I'm going to ask Christina to come. Is she here? She had to leave. Anybody want to come and close us in prayer? Anybody that's led somebody to Jesus just recently, raise your hand. You just recently led somebody. All right, Anna, come here. <laughs> yep. Don't raise your hand. Would you pray for all of us as we close that the Lord will help us to lead somebody to him? Amen. Oh, Father. You see all those souls out there in need of you. Father, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will come so strong and fill our heart with a hunger to lead anybody and everybody to you. Prepare them, Lord, for when we come. Get them ready. We just give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you, everybody. Have a great week. I love you.